From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From variants to fall boosters, we get a COVID checkup today from a lung doctor at Denver Health who also advises the state. Then she largely spent the last year listening. I sit down with Colorado's outgoing state historian, Nikki Gonzalez. People want to feel validated. They may have these, this shoebox full of documents or photographs and these oral stories in their head. And just to have somebody who is a trained historian to validate and to give voice to those really matters. What this past year taught her about her own family who worked in the sugar beet fields. And singer-songwriter Judy Collins returns to her old stomping grounds. When I was a girl in Colorado Rivers danced the canyon Colorado Public Radio thanks Prestige Imports Porsche Audi for their support and the loan of an Audi Q5, giving the CPR Newsroom a vehicle to get to breaking news and follow stories across Colorado. Find out more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Coming this fall, a new COVID booster. At least that's the plan. The U.S. government envisions distributing millions of doses. They'd target the latest Omicron variants, including BA5, which has been spreading rapidly in Colorado. Let's do a pandemic checkup with Dr. Anuj Mehta, pulmonary and critical care physician at Denver Health. He also advises the state health department. Doctor, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. According to the state, COVID-19 hospitalizations have remained fairly steady. Overall, case counts have been declining just a tad. But, you know, anecdotally, it seems like more people I know have COVID right now or recently have had than at any point in the pandemic. Am I full of it? What, what do you, what's the picture here? No, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I think there's a tremendous amount of community spread from COVID. And this is one of the problems with case counts is that most states, not just Colorado, but state and national counts rely on things that are reported to the state public health department. And so many people are doing the home rapid antigen tests and those don't, don't just don't get counted. So I think what we're seeing is that there's tremendous community spread, but that hospitalizations are remaining stable and we're not seeing kind of the big waves of hospitalizations that we saw maybe during Delta or at the first um, at the very beginning of Omicron. Now, do you attribute that to vaccinations? Do you attribute that to the nature of BA5, a little bit of both? I think it's a combination. I think that uh, the data at least would suggest that all of the versions of Omicron don't cause as severe disease as, say, Delta did, where you know a lot of people ended up in the hospital and yeah. quite ill at that time. But also, we're still seeing that you know patients who are who have been vaccinated and boosted have very strong protection against severe disease and uh, progressing to hospitalization. And people that caught Omicron, say, maybe in January and February, probably still have a little bit of post-infection immunity. So they're still getting reinfected with BA5. We've seen that for sure. You know, they had COVID in January or February. Now it's, uh, you know, six months later and they're getting it again. But they still have some of that post-infection immunity that's preventing the progression to severe disease. Oh, that's interesting. So if you've had COVID before, you get it again. It's not just a question of getting it again or not. It's also a question of the strength you get it again 
at. Yeah, and I think <laughs> that's a question for all forms of immunity, right? Um, whether it's vaccine-related immunity or post-infection immunity, we ask two questions. Does it reduce your chances of getting COVID at all, uh -huh. you know, even mild COVID? And then does it reduce your chances of being hospitalized um, uh, or developing severe disease? And then the last question for any type of immunity is how long does it last? Right. So we know that post-infection immunity does offer protection, um, but it's short-lived. And that's why we're seeing people who were only had COVID a few months ago being reinfected again. Um, and I suspect that all of that is going to wear off maybe by the fall or winter. And so those patients are going to be vulnerable um, to have severe disease. We know that the immunity from vaccines and being boosted lasts much longer. But we're still seeing patients who are boosted that are getting COVID. They're just not ending up in the hospital. And you used the figure six months. Is that what we believe immunity to be? Nobody has great great uh, numbers um, because you know we're seeing people reinfected now, and we only start to see the science or the research um, that really determines the duration of post-infection immunity um, a few months later. Everything lags in science. That's just the reality of it. Yeah. But I would say three to six months is kind of where we've been talking about post-infection immunity since the beginning. Okay, and then what you've laid out naturally points to the question of a fall booster. Uh, mm -hmm. How how likely do you think that is? And, you know, I have access to some of the same information that everybody else does, but I think that Pfizer and Moderna have really um, uh, been testing. They've already been doing clinical trials of what's called a bivalent um, vaccine. So it'll have some aspects of the original version, some aspects of Omicron. Um, they've also been doing testing with just Omicron-based boosters. And really the key thing is not just having adequate testing. It's also having adequate manufacturing capabilities. So from what I've read, it looks like both companies have started manufacturing what they believe to be um, the core elements to what will be a fall booster. So I anticipate fully that we're going to see a fall booster that's tailored to um, some version of Omicron, whether it's the earlier ones that do still offer some degree of protection against BA4 and 5, um, or if it's a dedicated kind of BA5 um, uh, version of the booster. But, you know, I don't think we're, we know clearly yet what the components are going to be or how it's going to be targeted. But the data would suggest that the ones that they're working on now that have some aspects of the original vaccine, some aspects of a vaccine targeted against uh, Omicron will offer much greater protection against regular disease. So, you know, mild illness, but also um, against ongoing uh, protection against severe disease and hospitalization. I mean, it's starting to sound a bit like the flu shot, you know, where... We know what's circulating, or we at least anticipate what might be, and then we inoculate people annually. Do you think we're headed in that direction with COVID? We could be. The really interesting thing about um, about COVID is that it's actually mutating faster than the flu. Hmm. And part of that has to do with the number of people that are infected. So I think that most people view COVID as, oh, I might just get a little bit ill. I don't have to worry about it too much. But every person that gets infected is um, a vector to potentially generate a new variant. So, so many people are getting inve infected. The virus is rapidly um, uh you know, replicating in their bodies. And it's that's how variants evolve. And so I think, um, you know, unlike the flu, where we kind of target one or two strains a year, I think what we're seeing is that we're going to have rapid mutations until we have the amount of community spread decrease somewhat. Oh, I guess the optimist in me hoped that COVID would just tucker itself out, but it doesn't appear to be happening. 
I, you know, it could happen. Um, nobody really knows why in 2009, H1N1 um, went away yeah. or a few years later, why SARS, um, the original SARS, um, petered out. We all expected it to actually kind of explode like COVID did, but the original SARS didn't. So what is going to drive COVID to maybe become more endemic where we don't see these spikes? I'm not sure. I think it is going to be a combination of um, of herd immunity, and that's going to be a combination of vaccines, boosters, and some degree of post-infection immunity. But I think the key thing that I continue to focus on and focused on for a long time is what strain is it putting on our healthcare system? And I think right now hospitals, while short-staffed because of the two years of, of um, you know, traumatic care that we've been providing, yeah. um, hospitals are not overwhelmed with COVID right now. And that for me is a good sign. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're joined once again by Dr. Anuj Mehta, who is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Denver Health. He also advises the state health department, and we're getting something of a COVID checkup in the state. What is the current protocol if you're infected? How do I know when it's safe to go back into the world? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and, and there's a lot of conflicting information and conflicting data. The official guidelines from the CDC, which most, most people would endorse and say we should be following, state that when you test positive, you should isolate for five days, either from the onset of symptoms or from the first uh, positive test if you're asymptomatic. The caveat being that at the end of those five days, you have to have dramatically improved symptoms. Um, which for a lot of people with COVID after, you know, it's like a cold, after a couple of days, they're feeling much better. They could re-enter society, but they should really be masking for at least another five days. Ah, uh, The question becomes what happens if you still have symptoms at day five? And mm-hmm. if you still have symptoms at day five, we know that, you know, 30 to 40, maybe up to 50% of people are still infectious at day five, that we should really be extending that isolation period to about 10 days. Um, and then people should continue to mask for as long as they have symptoms. Uh, that's, you know, kind of the best advice at this point. Um, and uh, I don't know if we're going to start seeing different advice in the future as COVID becomes more endemic, though. It's interesting to me, though, that you are suggesting the symptoms drive my decision making because I kind of I got COVID and I relied on a test about, you know, whether I should re-enter the world. I, I know several friends who've done the same. And once that's coming up negative, they felt safer being out and about. Is that not the right approach? The problem with that approach is that is not so much if you're negative. Um, and we do know that some of those home antigen tests, they're just not as good against BA5. Uh-huh. Uh, they're not as good early in the, in the course. But the other problem is the flip side of that is people, some people with the home antigen test have a persistently positive test. And we really don't know what to do, what to recommend for those patients. Huh. Um, we don't have the science yet. That being said, we know that dead virus can cause some of these uh, some of these um, tests to turn positive, and that's definitely why we should not be relying on PCR tests. PCRs are what you get, um, you know, when you go to a major testing center. They may take up to twenty four hours to get back to you. If you go in the hospital, we're typically running PCR tests, and those can be positive for weeks sometimes, and not often, but sometimes, and you're not infectious. So, you know, if on day ten you still have a positive antigen test, but your symptoms are dramatically better. Um, you know, I would probably wear a mask maybe um, to keep everyone around you protected, but, you know, it's probably okay to reenter society. Again, if you're positive and you still have symptoms, it all, then, you know, you should continue to isolate. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for my own experience with COVID, the fatigue has subsided, but, you know, I find that I'm 
slow to recall words, names. This is, again, anecdotal. I find myself putting things that belong in the refrigerator, uh, 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 like in the cupboard and vice versa. What picture is emerging of long COVID? Long COVID, it's a tough picture. Um, It's a combination of multiple symptoms. There are some persistent pulmonary or lung symptoms like shortness of breath and cough Uh that can last for a while. Some of it has to do with the fact that, um, you know, you just are deconditioned after maybe being ill for 10 10 days, two weeks sometimes. Um, But other people have ongoing cough. They're not able to exercise in the same way that they could. I have a lot of people I know, you know, a month later, they're still not able to exercise. So that's part of long COVID. What you're describing is also a very commonly uh, common set of symptoms, which are neurologic symptoms. And, you know, the, the colloquial term that people use is brain fog. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's an appropriate term. People find themselves looking, find, looking for words, um, not really being able, not being as fast or as quick with, um, to respond to things as others. And, and then, as you said, you know, the putting groceries maybe in the wrong place. That's, <laughs> you're, you're describing like classic what we describe as a little bit of long COVID. Um, a lot of people get better spontaneously after four to six weeks, maybe a, maybe a couple months, sometimes faster. But then we know that there's persistence. And all of the studies are variable, but you know, a lot of them show that at six months, we have 20 to 30% of people with persistent symptoms, some of them pulmonary fatigue, that type of stuff, other people with the neurologic symptoms like brain fog. And honestly, the vast majority of people getting COVID, as we've talked about at this point, have relatively mild symptoms. So long COVID is a real concern about what the per, what the long-term complications of COVID will be. Something I worry about with my kids, if they had brain fog, if they're six years old, um, you know, they're at that key developmental stage, brain fog would be devastating to them. They're learning at an amazing rate. And so it's one of the reasons I got my kids vaccinated and boosted as soon as they were eligible, because I'm not so worried about them getting terribly ill with COVID, but I am worried about long COVID with them. Same thing with me. And that's why I continue to mask indoors um, when I'm in crowded settings like the grocery store. Um, But at the same time, you know, I've taken my mask outside, taken my mask off outside when I'm walking the dog or, 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 you know, just, you know, at the park or something like that. So it's a combination, I think, of protection that we need to be tailored to what our concerns are, but also re-entering society, which I think is important as well. And it is a testament to the fact that this story is going to go on for years, even if the virus subsides, because long COVID is a real question about our uh, health needs in perhaps the years, the decades to come. Um, Before we go, the University of Colorado took part in a study of monoclonal antibody treatment, and it found that a combination of two antibodies approved for people who are at risk uh, did reduce mortality. Uh, Do you think it's being recommended enough? Um, the University of Colorado has been a key research partner, so I'm not entirely sure about uh, which monoclonal antibody you're talking about. Okay. Um, if it's Evusheld, which is um, the preventative version, um, that's the one that we're giving people that don't respond to the vaccine well. It's not an alternative to the vaccine. It's for people that are not going to respond well to the vaccine. And I can speak to Denver Health um, and other um, agencies. We're really doing a lot of outreach to try and capture people that would benefit from this drug. So we need to get it out there. There's also monoclonal antibodies that are treatment options for people that have COVID. Mm -hmm. It's a separate class of um, treatments that also seem to reduce um, uh, hospitalization, but they've taken a backseat to some of the oral therapies that are out there at this point. So Evusheld, which is a monoclonal antibody to prevent COVID for people that either can't take the vaccine um, or where the vaccine doesn't work is definitely something that um, 
is something that, you know, we're trying to get to as many people who need it, like people on chemotherapy, people with weak immune systems that aren't going to respond to the vaccine. Um, so it's definitely a great option for, for people that can't be vaccinated. You mentioned oral therapies. I gather that includes Paxlovid, which was mm-hmm. uh, all the rage uh, at least a couple of weeks ago. Um, is Paxlovid something that people should consider? I think if you're high risk, so if you're an older adult, um, if you have comorbidities that put you at high risk for progression to severe disease, then I definitely think you should consider Paxlovid. There was a glut of Paxlovid in all states. We had a lot of it um, when case counts dropped a little bit. And so a lot of people started taking Paxlovid. And what they noticed was there were rebound symptoms. Paxlovid is a five-day course to be started within the first five days of symptoms. It has a lot of drug interactions, so you need to talk to your physician, you need to talk to your pharmacist um, or your primary care provider. But the key thing was that um, people that were low risk were also having rebound symptoms, meaning they would take the five courses, five days, they'd feel great, and then the symptoms would come back. They still want to progress to severe disease, which is the real goal of the medication. But really, you know, low risk people are unlikely to progress anyway. So I think that the people that should be considering it should be the ones that are um, high risk age or comorbidities um, or a weak immune system. And I think it's a great option for them as long as they check uh, with their primary care providers about any sort of drug drug interactions. Check with your doctor, as they say. That is Dr. Anuj Mehta, who is a pulmonary critical care physician at Denver Health. He has also advised the state health department during this COVID pandemic. Still to come, the state historian on what the role has taught her about her own history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR leadership partners help bring inspiring music and fact-based news to everyone through gifts of $10,000 or more. If you're interested in joining this group of dedicated supporters, come to CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The assignment was to learn all she could about Colorado for a year. And as state historian Nikki Gonzalez ended up learning a lot about herself as well. Before she steps down from the role, August 1st, she sat down with us. Nikki, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You know, our collective history as a state is made up of millions of individual stories. I wonder what sorts of personal stories people have shared with you in the last year. Oh, that has been one of the thrills of, of being in this position. So people have shared with me stories of, well, actually, I talked to a man from Garcia, Colorado, in the San Luis Valley, and he's in his 80s, and Mr. Medina, and he told me the story of during World War II when the water rights in Garcia were diverted to another community in the San Luis Valley, and he was telling me the effects that that had on the community, both physical, economic, and psychological, and he was soliciting my help in figuring out why that happened during the war. And so people have shared stories along with questions about why certain things happened. Mysteries. Absolutely. Why was that story so important to Mr. Medina? Because it was a central part of his history. So he was a young kid at the time, and he probably went through economic changes to his community and his family. I mean, the second you lose water, right? Exactly. In a place that maybe gets eight inches of water a year. And yet has a tremendous amount of agriculture. That was the culture. It's an agricultural community. And so it must have been very devastating to that community. Did you find an answer as to why the water was diverted in the war? Not yet. So there's a number of stories that I still have yet to figure out. Thank you for mentioning Garcia in southern Colorado, almost exactly at the New Mexico line, 
south of Fort Garland, the notion of those mysteries that you encounter, I just wonder if that's what keeps you going in a way as a historian. I think that's a big part of it. So I think I became a historian because I want to make sense of the people and the places around me, mm-hmm. even when I was a little girl. And I see it as, especially with Colorado history, as this big puzzle. And we only have a few of the pieces. And so I see my job to be finding and giving voice to some of those other pieces. And that actually, that has been probably the biggest thrill of this past year. Well, and you've wanted to do that using more diverse pieces, not just white pieces, uh, if to put it plainly. And I wonder if you feel you've been able to achieve that. I think so. I think one of the, so that was one of the two priorities that I had going into this year was really trying to amplify those diverse voices in Colorado history. And I think my position, especially as a Latina, really mattered, especially to those communities of color, particularly the Latino community, because as, as they say, representation matters. You know, people emailed me, they called me, they texted me. Were those people with questions or people just who felt seen? There were some questions, uh-huh. but there were also people who just wanted to share their stories. And what a gift. I mean, I spent the majority of my time as state historian listening to those stories. And, you know, people want to feel validated. They may have these the shoebox full of documents or photographs mm. and these oral stories in their head. And just to have somebody who is a trained historian to validate and to give voice to those really matters. What was an aha moment for you? Oh my gosh, there were so many aha moments. And I'd say one of the things about my experience this year is that it was deeply personal. So my family has very deep roots in Colorado. And so through listening to other people's stories, through visiting the opening of a film about beat workers in Weld County, in visiting Lafayette and, and seeing, you know, the history of Lafayette and how the Latino community, Mexican-American community there was denied access to public facilities like swimming pools, I began to um, have many aha moments mm. in which I put not only the pieces of Colorado history together, but also the pieces of my own family history. And I was like, oh, that's what that great aunt was telling me about. Or that's what my dad telling me about relatives who worked the fields in northern Colorado. That's what that experience was. I gather these were sugar beets. Sugar beets, yes. Yeah, because you can get sugar from sugar cane. You can also get it from beets. And that was quite the industry in Colorado, isn't it? It was quite the industry in Colorado, um, particularly after the Second World War. You said... Oh, that's what my, was it your great aunt? What did she tell you about? She was telling me how some of the siblings in my grandmother's family, so she was a sister of my my paternal grandmother, Mm. how they used to pick vegetables. And when I was little and I heard this, like it didn't really register what that work was like, but seeing the film and talking to people who did work the beet fields outside of my family really shed light on what that lifestyle was really like and how hard that work is. Yeah, not easy work. What were, what were the details of that kind of work that stood out? Well, one of them, um, actually from a few of them, I heard about the, the short-handled hoe. So it was a tool, and the, the handle was literally short. It was like maybe two feet long. And so you ha- really had to stoop to use it. You couldn't stand up straight. Oh. And so using that hour after hour, day after day, I mean, think about the toll that that takes on a person's body. Oh, goodness, yes. That idea of being hunched over for hours. Oh, and I'd like to add one more thing to that story. So in telling me what the work was like and how grueling it really was, they were 
ecstatic that there was a monument unveiled last fall to the beat workers of Colorado. And it was this big community celebration at the unveiling. And it was an effort that was led by Betty Aragon in Fort Collins. This is in Fort Collins at Sugar Beet Park. So these were stories that you had heard growing up, but I don't imagine they were stories you often heard in the classroom. I never heard them in the classroom until I got to a little bit of college and graduate school. I wonder if that's something that you have hoped to change as state historian. It is something that I I have hoped to contribute to changing. And it's also something that I hope to carry forward in my work as well. Yeah, I, I understand you plan for a fellowship program. Tell us about this. Oh, sure. So the fellowship program will build upon History Colorado's Museum of Memory program, which is taking the museum to communities across Colorado and collecting oral histories through a series of reflective exercises and also collecting artifacts and photographs um, from different communities to tell their story. And so my project is to create a group of fellowships for young people, um, high school age or college age, to learn how to collect oral histories, to learn how to collect artifacts, and then to tell those stories. So my vision is to continue it through communities across Colorado. So not just Denver or the Front Range, but to indigenous communities, particularly in the southwest part of the state and to communities on the eastern plains. With the two recognized tribes in Colorado. Yeah. You know, we've seen that teaching a fuller picture of history can get controversial. I mean, it certainly requires a student to re-examine their own place in our collective story. Did you get pushback in the past year? I didn't get too much pushback at all. I think I was working with communities and individuals who who saw things like I did and, and wanted to you know, we're very accepting of those additional stories. But in my teaching career, I have gotten pushback. Mm, how do you deal with that? Um, I always ask questions. And one of the things that we really um, promote at Regis as part of our Jesuit values is to meet people where they are. And I think that's really important in a history classroom because students will be at various stages in their development, in their knowledge of American history. They come from families who who hold certain beliefs and assumptions about other groups. And so to meet those students where they are with kindness. And I see my job as a teacher as, as transforming the, these young people's minds and opening them up to new possibilities. And so, I mean, it's never easy, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's possible. And, and I've seen it happen many times. Well, as someone who believes in asking questions, I really appreciate that answer, Nikki. One way to ensure, of course, that history becomes more inclusive is to have more educators of color. Um, how do you think you make academia a more of a representation of society? Is that something you struggle with? Yes, and that's part of my work. I'm serving as Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Regis, and part of what we're working on is creating a more diverse professorate and creating a faculty that more accurately reflects the diversity of the students. And so it's all about creating a pipeline for students. Yeah, exactly. The pipeline feels really important, right? It, it absolutely is. So introducing, this, in my case, the study of history to younger students, to young kids, making it exciting and something that they might want to pursue as they grow older. I didn't really realize that I could make a career of doing history until I was a senior in college. Which is a bit late, would you say? It was really late. Like if that had been planted earlier, 
How do you think life might have changed? I think I would have struggled a little bit less in mm-hmm. college in, in trying to figure out what I was doing or what I was supposed to be doing. I would have gone more with what really drew me, what really spoke to my heart. Well, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Nikki Gonzalez of Regis University ends her year as state historian August 1st, which just so happens to be Colorado Day, the day we became a state. Her successor is Jared Orsi of Colorado State University. He'll focus on the legacies of colonialism and access to public lands. He's taught summer field courses following Zebulon Pike's route across Colorado. Well, they say you can't go home again, but a new project allows you to experience the history and the diversity of Denver's Five Points and Curtis Park neighborhoods. CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane finds it sheds light on one group of Americans in particular. Denver experienced a boom in Japanese culture and businesses after World War II and the closure of Colorado's internment camps, which imprisoned over 10,000 people of Japanese descent. Today in Denver's Five Points neighborhood, an interactive story-sharing web-based app takes visitors back in time for a unique neighborhood tour, the project titled Stories of Solidarity, Japanese Americans in Five Points, is a collaboration among the Japanese Arts Network, Mile High Japanese American Citizens League, and supported by Arts in Society. But for creator Courtney Ozaki, it's personal. This project came out of an interest in my personal family history. Both sides of my family ended up in five points following World War II and the closing of the Japanese incarceration camps that they were living in for a number of years. Many Japanese Americans resettled in the Five Points neighborhood both during and following World War II because then-Colorado Governor Ralph Carr had the uncommon stance that incarceration of Japanese Americans was unconstitutional. Ozaki says the project explores the convergence of African American, Latinx, and Japanese American communities. The project includes oral histories from community elders still living in the area, which inspired the sites on the tour. Richard Yoshida grew up in the neighborhood and attended Manual High School. He recalls how neighbors found a way to be neighbors. My grandmother would go back in the backyard, and then there's a neighbor on the other side of the fence. All she knew was how to speak Spanish, and all my grandmother knew was how to speak Japanese. But they would yak, 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 and chat. Or I don't know, all along, you know, using their own language, and they would understand each other. Marge Tanawaki, who also attended Manual High School, remembers how diverse the neighborhood was. We used to call ourselves the Little United Nations because there were so many of us from varying backgrounds, and we all got along. And I know that I still have many lifelong friends back from that time. Charles Ozaki, Courtney Ozaki's father says the shared experience for all the people in Five Points reflects societal values during the time that united residents. It had effect of pooling people together, but it also had the effect of separating people. A lot of the people who were separated were impacted by continually being disadvantaged in our society. These elders want to identify lessons for today. Richard Yoshida. We were all able to get along together, and uh, I think that is a very important lesson in light of the things that are happening in in the world today. Marge Tanawaki hopes sharing this part of Denver history will have a political and economic impact, namely that it will help slow gentrification. 
And so if they learn what the area was like when we were growing up, I'm hoping that it will sway some people to stop building the kinds of apartment buildings that are only affordable to the rich and are pushing out the longtime residents who deserve to be there to retain the history of other longtime family associations with that area. For Courtney Ozaki, the history of people in the area is one that may not be apparent to many people just walking around. You know, there aren't any landmarks really that tell anybody that there was a Japanese presence in the Five Points area. And I think the contributions, both economically as well as the relationships built, were very important to future generations. The Mapping Project invites people to participate in the exhibition on foot, by car, or from their desktop at home. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. President Biden may declare abortion access a health emergency, and the White House is under increasing pressure to take executive action after the reversal of Roe v. Wade. While access is cemented in Colorado law, violent threats against clinics that perform abortions are on the rise. And doctors say safety is increasingly top of mind. CPR's Matt Bloom reports. The front entryway to Dr. Warren Hearn's clinic in Boulder is different from most doctor's offices. Outside, the doors here are locked. To get in, you have to show your ID. And inside, the front reception desk is protected behind a thick layer of glass. All of this is bulletproof windows, okay? It's all for good reason. One morning in 1988, a man carrying a high-powered rifle fired five rounds into the office's front window. One of the bullets almost hit one member of my staff. I had just walked through. There were cars in the parking lot. Whoever fired the rifle was trying to kill somebody. The man was a member of an anti-abortion protest group. It's just one of many attacks on Dr. Hearn's practice over his nearly 50 years of performing abortions. There haven't been any major attempts here in recent years, but he's been getting more threats over the phone and through email in recent weeks, something that he believes will get worse. And so I think that the, the, the threat to our lives is permanent. It's not going to go away. The anti-abortion people have shown that they're willing to accept any level of violence, up to and including assassination and bombing. Incidents of blockades, assaults, and break-ins at clinics have all increased significantly over the past three years. The number of reported stockings of staff increased 600 percent. That's according to a recent survey from the National Abortion Federation, the country's largest association of providers. Unfortunately, because we've been tracking this and we see it every day, it's not surprising. Melissa Fowler is the Federation's chief program officer. She says rhetoric from political leaders has fueled a lot of the violence. You've seen more politicians really being bold and out, talking about abortion providers, demonizing providers. And in some cases, it seems to be more acceptable for people to be out about their extremist behavior that perhaps they did secretly before. Colorado's last major attack took place in 2015, when a man entered a Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs and shot a dozen people. A police officer and two civilians died. The attack fueled calls for stricter gun control, and local police increased presence at clinics for several months after. Dr. Rebecca Cohen says it was a wake-up call, 
But she started upping security at her clinic in Denver even before then. We have been taking security measures of, you know, not revealing our clinic location to people that don't have an appointment, of making sure that we really do screen any potential employees, any potential volunteers, limiting the number of support people that someone can have with them. Like, we've been doing all those things. All the precautions, though, have taken a toll on staff. That's hard for us as healthcare providers as well, right? Like, we came into this to take care of people, and just what it means to take care of someone has gotten so much broader and so much more difficult. No shame, no condemnation. Just outside a Planned Parenthood clinic in Denver, Michelle Forsen stands on a 10-foot-tall ladder. She pokes her head over the top of a fence to talk to a woman as she walks up to the clinic's front door. Anytime. Don't feel like you have to stay if you're not willing to go through with it. Thorson is part of Love Life, a Christian anti-abortion group. Their work mainly involves offering brochures that advertise help to women who choose not to go through with abortion. Thorson says she doesn't view her work as violent or threatening, but understands doctors' concerns. You know, maybe there have been some groups or some individuals in the past that have kind of given us a bad rap because you know, of the their delivery or their technique or what have you, but um, that's not um, our goal at all. She says their group follows all of Colorado's laws around protesting at clinics, including a buffer zone rule that's been on the books since 1993. That puts in place an imaginary eight-foot bubble around patients as they enter a health care facility. But Hearn, the Boulder abortion doctor, says it isn't enough to protect people in a vulnerable place. I think that it's, it's stressful for the patients if they encounter the demonstrator, but we give the patients a ride in our, our van between here and the hotel so they don't have to face that every day. After they get through the first day, then we take care of them. That remains his main focus, he says, even with threats on the rise. This is a critical, uh, essential component of women's health care for women in the 21st century, and we're going to keep doing it. But it comes at a personal cost. A few years ago, he started sleeping with a rifle by his bed, and he doesn't plan on changing that anytime soon. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. Folk singer Judy Collins is prolific. When she's not writing an album, she's writing a book, and often her childhood in Colorado serves as inspiration. She performs Sunday at the Denver Botanic Gardens. We spoke in February when she released her 29th record, Spellbound. The first single is When I Was a Girl in Colorado. When I was a girl in Colorado I could conquer anything I could fly with wings of silver I could whisper Judy Collins, thank you for being with us. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so happy to be with you in Colorado this morning. The line from this song, I could conquer anything, expound on that feeling of limitlessness in Colorado for you. I have spent the morning today writing about my summer at Fern Lake in 1958. And of course, Fern Lake Lodge was built in 1910. And I think the park was dedicated in 1915. But this has given me such rapture to write about this period. I'm writing a new book, of course. I'm always trying to write a book. 
or a song. <laughs> and so Girl from Colorado really emphasizes those moments, which I remember so clearly. You know that feeling that you get when you're about 16 or 17, and suddenly the world opens up to you, and you realize that you can do anything you want to do. It's an amazing place to grow up, Colorado, and it was all around us, the beauty, the glory of the mountains, when we could get to them. When I was a girl in Colorado, I knew enough to fall in love, like the bluebirds in the pine trees, like the snowfall from a remember your first love and was that in Colorado because this seems to me to be at least partly a love song oh it certainly is my first love was my my husband Peter Taylor my first husband we met when I was 16 and we got together and married when I was 16 17 18 19 in 1958 and well before that I don't know I had flurries with Dave Larson <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a couple other guys. I went out with a guy, a big tall guy who played a lot of football in high school. And Randy Robinson drove this smart yellow Jeep. And sometimes he'd give me a ride to school. And he also asked me to the senior prom at East High School. So I, did, <laughs> I didn't dance very well. And he was the dancer in the school. So... <laughs> I was sort of left standing in the dust there. Uh, you invoke Long's Peak. Estes Park has certainly made it into your songs before. Yeah. You also sing about the outbound Zephyr. I wasn't sure, actually, Judy Collins, if you were thinking of the breeze or the train or both. <laughs> I was thinking of the train. I figured, okay. I know that there was something called a Zephyr in my train history. I know. For and sure. To get out. No. I live in New York now. I love New York. I've been here for over, oh my, 60 years, I guess. And I love it in New York. And I don't know where I would live other than Colorado. But I go back to Colorado, of course. I have a brother who still lives there in Gypsum. And I ski the mountains and always get back every once in a while. Uh, back to some of the music and the track Prairie Dream, which invokes the Trail of Tears and frankly, the destruction of Manifest Destiny. Uh, I yes. understand that this is partly about your father. My father was born in, on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation in Nez Perce, Idaho. He was not an Indian, but his favorite person was Chief Joseph, and he kept him as a model. But I have always worried and thought about the American Indians and the horror show that they were presented with upon the, the showing up of the white man. 
and the fight that has been going on ever since. So my heart just, somehow it's too much to take in. And I had to write that song, The Prairie Dream. It's really a salute to the tribes. I got a few of the tribal names in there at the end, but it's really for all of our American Indian tribes that I have ever thought of or known about. Album art, or, or, or what I've seen so far associated with the album, uh, features you and your hands. And I wonder <laughs> what what you think when you look at your hands and what you see when you look at your hands now. I see that I have to practice today. I have arthritis. I've always had arthritis, but I don't have pain. And I have these hands that have been able to carry me through this 60-year career. I, I play the mm. piano every day. I play the guitar most of the time. I have to keep those calluses in shape. One of the reasons I put that picture of my hands in there is I'm wearing my mother's old wedding ring on my little finger. It has a barrier ring that holds it in that has amethyst in it. And then there's my wedding ring, and there are a couple of, there's a big sparkly ring. I don't know if my right hand actually shows, I can't remember. But the hands, the hands, they're so. Uh, important and so present and they work so hard <laughs> so mm. I decided they needed to be shown in their proximity to my face I think hands tell a story and it's so lovely to see them on your album cover given given how much they've written both in bo yeah. both books and music they also wrote the song Grand Canyon so why don't we leave with that, it's about the Colorado River and a river guide. What shall we say about the song before we listen? Oh, I was very fortunate to get to know a couple of Long's Peak Rangers and a friend of mine who sang some of the first songs I ever heard at the Denver Folklore Society meetings, Dick Parker. Dick Parker had float trips down the Snake River later in his life. But I knew a lot of park rangers, and I knew a lot of people who did what they did, climbed Long's Peak, rescued people who fell off the mountain, and who took river trips down the Colorado. It's the kind of a song which is reminiscent of a lot of things all at once but that mainly tells the story of when Colorado was a major river with lots of water in it and lots of rapids. I don't know what the 
story is at this point in this drought, but I thought people ought to be reminded that it's a big, always has been a big part of the Western story, and that people rode down it and and lived by it and walked by it. It's a combination of my passion for the landscape in Colorado and my love affairs and my great memories. Once I knew a man who traveled down her waters every day, made his living guiding strangers where his shadows knew the way. On the borders of the rivers, lit the fires and smoked the pipes, told the travelers all his stories, dared them all to win the prize. White with Thank you for being with us. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here with you. He was hard about his work, soft about the columbines, spoke about Apache friends, missed the years of silver mines. Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Judy Collins, who grew up in Colorado. We spoke in February. Her new album is Spellbound. She performs Friday in Steamboat Springs, and Sunday at the Denver Botanic Gardens. And that is Colorado Matters for now, with thanks to my spellbinding colleagues. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.